Yeah, good to be with you. If uh, if you would, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7 as we're continuing this series called The Hope of Glory. I know for many of us, when we think about the book of Revelation, our minds fill with these images of riders on horses and dragons and beasts and these um, scary and absurd-looking heavenly creatures, and all of this can feel very otherworldly. Um, but as I know you've heard the last two weeks from, uh, from John Raines and from Father Aaron, Revelation is actually a very this-worldly text, and it's written to a church that is undergoing tremendous suffering. And John, the writer, what he has to offer that church is a message of hope. So years ago, when I was in college, I took a class, and the title of that course was simply Suffering. That's all it was, it was just simply Suffering. And it was, it was all about kind of these, these big questions of why does a, a good and gracious God allow evil and pain and suffering to exist? And it was taught by a man who himself had suffered. As a teenager, he, had, he was in a tragic accident. He was paralyzed from the waist down. And I distinctly remember talking to another professor about this class. And what that other professor said to me was this. He said, if you're going to dig into these questions... If you're going to dig into these questions, then that's the kind of guy you want to learn from. You don't want to just learn from somebody who's thought about these ideas, but you want to learn from somebody who lived them. And that's what this professor had done. And I I think about that this morning, because as we're reading John's words here, John is the kind of guy that we want to learn from on on the subjects of suffering and endurance and hope. Because these are, this is a lived reality for him. He's somebody who has suffered himself. He is somebody who has witnessed tremendous suffering and the persecution that is happening to the church at this time. He is somebody who is currently undergoing a kind of suffering as he's in exile on the Isle of, uh, of Patmos. And so this is precisely the kind of person that we want to learn from on the subject of hope. Because many of us gathered here today, many of us, of course, are suffering in one form or another. And many of us, maybe all of us, have some ache in our heart for somebody else who is suffering. And so this is, this is a message of hope that we need, and John is qualified to speak into our lives. This is a lived reality for him. And so I always find it helpful when I'm reading Revelation to try to pick John in my imagination, to try to picture him where he is. So he says in chapter 1 that this vision was given to him while he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, while living on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God in the testimony of Jesus. So Patmos is this small, rocky, mountainous island just off the coast in in present-day Turkey. And John is there after being exiled for his preaching and ministry. It's it's likely that he's writing during the time of the emperor Domitian at the end of the first century. Domitian was demanding that his subjects worship him as a god. And he also instituted kind of the first state-sponsored program of persecution of the Roman Empire, persecution of Christians. And that's why John can say in chapter 1 that he's, he's our brother and our partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, our brother and our partner in this trial. 
So imagine John, now probably in his 80s, perhaps sitting high up on this mountain. It's a sunny day, perhaps, like this. The wind is blowing. He's looking out at the coast. He's looking out at the mainland. And what he can see there, as he scans from left to right, is he can see these regions that he's going to be writing to in this letter, holding them in his heart. Perhaps he's there. He's there praying because this is what the Lord Jesus taught him to do so many decades before, to sit upon a mountain and pray. And so he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And out of the stillness of his prayers, out of the stillness of those prayers, comes a voice blasting like a trumpet. Write down what you see. Write down what you see and send it to those seven churches in those seven regions before you. This vision of Revelation is a gift from the Lord. And that is precisely what hope is, what true hope is. Hope is a gift, and hope is a guide. That's what we'll see in our text this morning. Hope is a gift, and hope is a guide. So moving now to our text, this vision begins in chapter 5. Father Aaron preached about this last week with the image of a scroll being opened, and the opening of these seven seals on that scroll. So these are like, you know, those, those wax seals, and they, you tear them open, and it reveals the contents of what's inside. And the first six seals, they're each these images of judgment. And each of them conveys the Hebrew scriptures call the day of the Lord, the day when, when God finally puts evil to rights, when God finally uh, brings an end to injustice. When God finally does something about all of those things that grieve us in this life. And the seals build and they crescendo with this, you know, into this picture of the whole earth shaking and and stars are falling from the sky like fruit falls from a tree during a storm. And and people, great and small, you know, kings and queens and and slaves and, and outcasts, everybody is hiding in fear and anticipation. And this tumult builds and builds and builds throughout chapter six. And then chapter seven, stillness. Stillness. Look at chapter seven, verse one. After this, I, John, saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Another angel rises with the sun and calls out, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. All of this tumult and uproar and upheaval and then stillness. And John hears That's important. He hears with his ear the number of those sealed. 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. And so like everything in Revelation, people try to figure out what does this number mean? All right, who are these 144,000? And how can I be one of them? And why is that so few? Those kind of questions. Who are these people? And what actually seems wisest is to see this not as, as kind of a literal number, but as another picture, as another metaphor, as a picture of completeness, a picture of fullness, 
And so you're familiar with this number 12, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, 12 disciples, right? So this number 12 squared times by itself, 144 times by 1,000. 144,000 is the fullness and the completeness of Israel here on the day of the Lord being sealed, being protected, God's chosen people. And so John hears this number with his ears. And then our passage, verse 9, and this is in your bulletins as well. John looks with his eyes and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And see, do you notice what's different about these two images? John hears about the 144,000, the fullness of Israel, but what he sees is not 144,000. What he sees is a multitude too great to number, too great to number, and not just from the nation of Israel, but from every nation, every tribe, people, and language. And so what's going on here? Are these two different groups of people? Maybe, perhaps, as some have thought that. But others, like N.T. Like Wright, have argued that actually what we have is kind of two ways of talking about the same group of people. What John hears is that the fullness of Israel, the fullness of God's people, is sealed, protected, marked off. But what he sees is a multitude from every tribe and nation. And so what we have here is, is the Israel of God, right? God's chosen people. When do they come into their fullness? Israel comes into her fullness when the nations are brought in, when all of the peoples of the earth are joined with her before the Lord. And so either, either way you look at it, here's where it becomes very clear that this is an image of hope. This is an image of hope. This is something outside of John's own frame of reference. This is something that he would not have come up with on his own. Because it's a great multitude that no one could number. And remember what Christianity looks like at this time in the first century. Christianity is not a global, massive religion. Christianity is a fledgling religious sect. Made up of who? Of mostly slaves and outcasts. Christianity is tiny. And it's not the Christianity that, that we know today with, you know, two billion adherents. The Christianity of kings and queens. And when John looks out from Patmos, he doesn't see church steeples on the mainland. Right? If he sees anything, he sees temples to other gods. He's imagining the people he knows worshiping in small house churches. No power, no representation. He sees in the vision is a multitude too great to number. Something we take for granted here today, but would have been astounding to John. And secondly, note the diversity from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne of God, before the Lamb. And of course, we love this. We're like, oh, isn't it great that John, too, valued diversity and inclusion even in the first century? 
How wonderful. I'm, I'm, you know, and of course that's good, but, but that kind of sentimentality, right, that's good. It misses how radical this really is. Because in the ancient world, the nations don't gather around one God. In the ancient world, the nations are spread out, and in their different places, they worship their different regional gods. They're different deities. So the idea that the nations are gathering together in worship of the same person, one God, would have been absurd. It it wasn't a category in their minds like it is in ours. And even for the Jews who did believe in one God, this idea of a multitude from the nations coming in again, would have been astounding. I mean, yes, there were converts to Judaism. Yes, God had promised Abraham to bless the nations through him, right? But up until this time, those converts are few and far between. This is an astounding vision, which is really interesting to me. You know, whether or not you're a Christian, whether or not you believe that this is an authentic, divine vision, the fact that somebody in the first century saw this, a global phenomenon, multitudes too great to number, worshiping Jesus Christ. The fact that somebody saw this is incredible, right? I mean, how silly John must have felt writing this down, right? He, he might have been able to name most of the people in the churches that he's writing to. Not that many, not that many. But here he sees a multitude. And it doesn't sound silly to us today. We take it for granted that Christianity is is this massive global religion, but there's no way John could have predicted that. This vision is a gift. Hope is a gift. It's something that John receives that doesn't totally line up with his circumstances, his present circumstances. It's a gift from the Lord that comes from outside. And I think this is helpful for us today because it's easy When we look around at our circumstances, it's easy to feel kind of gloomy about the prospects for Christianity, for our faith. It's easy to to look around and think, man, is this going to last? Is this religion going to last when so many are falling away? So many are uninterested. And I think we should ask ourselves, is our situation any more dire than John's? Certainly not. Certainly not. God is working, even now, just like he was in John's day, in surprising, unexpected, unseen ways. And that's true for us, where we live, the United States as well. I'm reminded of of the story of uh, an Anglican priest. You probably never heard his name. His name was David Barrett. And uh, and David Barrett, um, you know, born in the U.K., uh, worked in, in Africa and Kenya, I think mostly in the 60s and 70s. And David Barrett was a religious demographer. So his job was to count people, to count Christians. And so he was doing that. And, what, and at the time, what was popular you know, in sociological circles was this idea of the secularization thesis, the idea that a society becomes more modern and advanced, and that as societies become more modern and advanced, then surely they'll abandon superstitious religious ideas. And so this this is what was popular, just the idea that religion was going to gradually more and more die out, especially in developing countries. But Barrett 
is working in some of these countries, and what he sees on the ground is something different. What Barrett sees on the ground is that Christianity is growing in Kenya and other parts of Africa. And it wasn't necessarily because of Western missionaries, you know, flowing in, but it was growing through indigenous leaders in those places. And so while Africa only had 9 million Christians in 1900, only 9 million on the whole continent, Barrett in 1970 predicted, I think by the year 2000, there's going to be 350 million Christians on the continent of Africa. And people mocked him. They thought that's absurd. This totally goes against the best of our sociological thinking right now. But you know what? Barrett was right. There were even more than that number. And the sociologists had to admit that they were wrong. And they had to admit that while this secularization thesis seemed to be holding for Europe and for the West, it didn't apply to Africa and Asia. Christianity was growing. God was working in surprising and unexpected ways that most of the educated elite did not see coming. Hope testifies to a God who works in these surprising ways. And hope doesn't always align with our circumstances, what we can see. And that's why it's a gift. It's a gift that comes to us from the outside, that comes to us from above. And so now let's, let's turn to the final images in this past passage and see that hope is a guide. Hope is a guide. So John's vision closes with these images of worship that would be familiar to his Jewish audience. So verse 15, you know, um, or to a Jewish audience, you know, his audience is, are many Gentiles. Verse 15, the multitude are before the throne of God, serving him day and night, just like the psalmist long to do. You know, you think of these psalms of ascent, these psalms desiring to go up to the house of the Lord and worship him. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. You know, those kind of psalms. This is what the people are doing. They're worshiping the Lord day and night. Then he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And that word shelter evoking these images, you know, from the exodus of this cloud of, of fire, right, that, that guards and shelters the people of God by night and leads them by day. Of the presence of God filling the temple with his glory. So there's this continuity here. There's a continuity between the worship of these saints on earth and their worship in the eternal kingdom. They're, they're experiencing the fulfillment of all of that worship. Everything, all of those days was pointing to this. And despite what they suffered in their lives here on the earth, their needs are provided for there in the eternal kingdom. Verse 16, they shall hunger no more. They shall thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. These are words that, that come to them from the prophets. This is, this is the language of the prophets talking about the people of God returning from exile. This is John seeing that the exile is over. The great exile is over. We're coming home. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Right? This irony, this wordplay. The lamb will be their shepherd. The lamb who was slain. The lamb who's, in whose blood these saints have washed their robes clean. 
That lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. You know, reminiscent of of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You know, reminiscent of this, this story that John himself records of the woman at the well to whom Jesus promises to give living water so that she'll never have to return to the well again. She'll never be thirsty again. And finally, this quote from Isaiah 25, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God, the great and powerful and fearsome God of judgment, will come close just as he came close in the person, Jesus Christ. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. You know, one commentator said, this is, this is like, you know, a child, you know, who's been crying, and all of a sudden they, they start laughing, they come out of that fit that they're in, and they're smiling, but they still have the tears kind of running down their cheeks. This is what God will do. He'll come close and wipe away those tears once and forever. Hope is a guide. These words are a guide to us because they teach us how to patiently endure. They teach us what to do with our longings and our desires for healing and wholeness. They teach us that those longings will be satisfied one day. Don't lose hope. They will be satisfied. And otherwise, we, you know, we'd be right to say, like, why bother? Why bother living sacrificially? This life is all we have. Why bother, uh, you know, turning from sin and temptation? Why not eat and drink, right, for tomorrow we die? Why bother doing the work, right? Whatever that work is, whether it's a, a work of justice societally or whether it's a kind of internal work, why bother doing any of this if we're just gonna die? Because hope teaches us that fulfillment will come that fulfillment of our longings will come, that every good work begun in this life will come to fulfillment in the next. That is our hope. And that's what propels us in all of these good works here and now. What's begun here will be completed on that day. Nothing will be wasted. Hope is a guide for our lives here and now. And so I want to end with this application and encourage all of us to make room in our hearts for hope. Make room in your hearts for hope. You know, many of us spend a great deal of our lives, right, on the internet, you know, staring at our phones. Many of us spend a great deal of our lives reading news stories of suffering, more than than we could ever read in a lifetime, coming to us almost I mean, every day, right? And there's, there's kind of this obligation that comes with that, that maybe many of us feel, that we have to expose ourselves to suffering. We have to be aware of it. And kind of this messaging, you know, like, don't look away. Don't look away. Read about this. Think about this. Internalize this. You know, that, that kind of messaging is out there. And I, I feel kind of two ways about that. On the one hand, I think, yeah, that's really important. It's really important porous to some degree, that we're empathetic, that we're aware of the suffering of others. But at the same time, it's not like we're all the same temperamentally. You know, some of us 
can read a story of tremendous suffering and go right on with our days, right? Forget about it almost as soon as we've read it. And for others of us, we read one of those stories and it like wrecks our whole day. It wrecks our whole week. And so that, that obligation that we kind of feel being, being aware, having all these stories on our phone, I, I think we need to be careful with that because temperamentally we're not all the same, right? And none of us has the capacity to bear all of the suffering that comes our way. Only God can do that and not be overcome. So I think, you know, kind of that, that gives me some hesitation about that. But this is what I want to say, that for as much as you make room in your life for the suffering of others, which is important, for as much as you do that, make room for hope. Make room for hope. Make room for the truths in this passage. Make room for the joyful belief that one day, the creator of the universe will recreate the universe. That one day, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Make room in your hearts for hope. Meditate on that. Ruminate on that. Encourage one another with that. Sit, you know, outside on this glorious day and receive all of the goodness of the Lord pouring into your life. Because cynicism about the world Cynicism that comes from kind of internalizing all of these awful stories, cynicism is not virtue. Cynicism is not virtue, but joy is. Make room in your heart for joy, even amidst suffering. Make room in your heart for hope. And this kind of hope, it gets mocked in our world. You know, it can be seen as, as escapist or, or naive or maybe even privileged as if only people in a privileged position could have this kind of hope, but that's not true. That's not true. And if you were to, to look around your life and if you were to converse with people that you know and if you were to read stories from history, you would find that some of the most hopeful people that have ever lived have been people who have suffered tremendously. They have suffered deeply. And yet their suffering did not diminish their hope. Why? Because hope is a gift. It does not arise from ourselves and our circumstances, but it is a gift from the Lord. It is a gift from the Father. It's not based in our circumstances. It's based on his gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And so hope becomes a guide that what we do on this earth really matters. That the good works we begin in this life really matter and they will be completed on that day. Amen? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.